Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this online RSA event. I'm Faisal Shaheen. Uh, I am the Program Director at New York Center on International Cooperation and a visiting professor uh, on practice um, at London School of Economics, the International Inequalities Institute there. Um, I also ran a think tank, a trade union back think tank uh, class for five years. Um, really, really excited today to have a chance to speak to the brilliant Darren McGarvey about his new book, The Social Distance Between Us, How Remote Politics Wrecked Britain. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Darren is a writer, hip hop artist, broadcaster and campaigner. He's a former rapper in residence at Police Scotland's Violence Reduction Unit. He has presented several programmes, and that's actually where I first saw you, I think, seeing you on a BBC documentary in BBC, BBC Scotland, exploring the root causes of social deprivation. And his first book, Poverty Safari, was awarded the Orwell Prize for Political Writing in 2018. Darren's new book, um, which I've just been reading over the last week, and um, The Social Distance Between Us, is a fascinating, in-depth and damning exploration of the impact of class inequality and the problems that arise when those in charge have little understanding or experience of what it's really like to live with when society systems and institutions are not created in your favour and indeed are against you. So looking forward to discussing this book with Darren today. And um, just quickly, for those of you watching along who would like to join in on this conversation, um, you're more than welcome to tweet and the hashtag is RSA inequality, um, or you can also chat uh, on the YouTube chat here. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really have been enjoying reading the book and, and excited to, to meet you, even if I'm online. Um, just to kick us off, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the core argument of the book. Thank you, Faiza. It's, it's lovely to be here with you today. Um, I think if I could sum the, the book's central argument up or central observation up in one sentence, it would simply be, there are things that governments can do and there are things that they should do, but they don't do because they don't want to upset people who have three driveways. And, you know, when it's boiled down, I think that that is the core argument. There is also a thesis around that, which is about proximity. And, and really, when, when we look at other professions, such as the medical profession, or we look at the legal profession, criminal justice, um, journalism, we see examples of it being deeply embedded within a professional orthodoxy that you really have to be in the same room as someone in order to uh, make any kind of valuable meaning or assessment of what is going on. So a journalist will be dispatched by an editor to the scene of a crime. Uh, a detective will be, will be dispatched to, to the scene to, to, to look at the forensic aspects of the situation. Um, a brain surgeon will not be conducting an over the phone interview with you, nor will they conduct an over the phone assessment with you. And we can even see during the pandemic how odd it has been to be getting telephone assessments with our GPs, which really fills us with a sense of dread as we have strong feelings about what might be wrong with us and how can a, how can a doctor diagnose that. Mm. So with all of that deeply embedded in all of these professions, why is it that we feel uh, that it's normal? or sensible that politicians devise social policy which is an attempt to address wicked economic social and cultural issues 
from behind closed doors, according not always to the scale of the problems, but their own political objectives, which are always short term. And so I, I believe that um, where they lack any lived experience in terms of what it's like to be an employee in a precarious labour market or someone who's interacting with the welfare state or someone who is trying to get help for a health problem in a, in a community where there's inadequate provision or someone who's interacting with the criminal justice system. If, they, if, if politicians who don't expose themselves to the lived experiences of others to get a more intimate insight into what it's like to deal with these institutions, um, then how, how will they learn how to do social policy better? And so this book is an attempt to drag them all kicking and screaming to the very front line of the social chaos in the UK. Thank you for that, Darren. And I, looking over the book, of course, a big part of it is our very ingrained class system and, and the way in which different groups don't interact with each other or are judged by each other. Um, interested in the book that you spoke about the way in which the language of class has come to be seen as coarse and um, divisive um, and how some of that language has been dropped and replaced with you know to me quite vacuous language around meritocracy or actually quite hurtful uh, hurtful when you think about some of the language around social mobility that acts like you should escape being working class for instance um, why do you think we've we've moved in that direction in terms of our conversation on class great question um, there are two reasons. One, there has been a concerted effort to flush the language of class inequality from our lexicon because when you invoke that language, it's inherently divisive. But it's not divisive in and of itself. It's divisive when someone picks that language up in an attempt to describe the forces that create inequality. And so really, uh, someone is getting closer to the root of the problem and that is inherently threatening to people who benefit from the status quo. Uh, the other reason is also that we have a generation of politicians who don't really have any experience of anything outside politics. And, and so we, we I, I evidence in the book, the rise of the career politician, which is, is, is just a, is a synonym for the rise of the middle-class politician who blows with whatever the political winds are doing and thinks in terms of electoral strategy rather than drawing a red line in the sand and saying, no, I have to defend these principles. I have to defend these class interests. Mm. So, so ultimately, social mobility, poverty of aspiration, meritocracy, these are all useful in certain contexts, absolutely. Uh, metrics that we should measure or aspirations that we should be aiming towards as a society. But ultimately, uh, they have, have led to mass confusion across the UK about the nature of the inequality, which is structural. And also they function more as comforting myths for people who have done well under the current economic settlement. So rather than bother people with three driveways about the reality of a marketized education system, which expands choice for those who can parachute their children into wealthy catchment areas, where their grades inflate the house price and then the house price inflates the grades and creates a little prosperity bubble. Uh, instead of actually examining the root of, of much of that prosperity, we create a myth of meritocracy which accounts for it, which means that people don't have to uh, burden themselves with examining 
their own partial complicity in a system which is created to intuitively sense the needs and aspirations and values of, of people who are prosperous. And, and, and while obviously when you make an argument like that, you run the risk of saying, of sounding like uh, you don't want people to be prosperous. You want to live in some kind of uh, nightmarish communism where everyone is allocated a job and everyone is paid the same. And that's not what I argue for in the book at all. What I'm interested in is getting to the truth of, of some of the, uh, of the delusions that I think in many ways underpin British society and, and uh, social mobility, meritocracy, and all of the, this other third sector jargon. Uh, it's just a way of, of making the truth about inequality in Britain a little easier to swallow, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just thinking there about um, my own little dabble in politics and um, when I ran against Ian Duncan Smith in 2019 and being told off for making it too personal because my own mother had seen her own benefits cut and had um, struggled with accessing social care even though she was very sick. And I remember being told off, like, you're making this too personal, you're getting too emotional. And I was like, well, how do you want me to be? And I think, you know, because this is personal, because those policies did affect me and my family um, and did hurt people. Um, but I, I totally agree with you that there is a sense amongst polite society that you don't do that. Um, you don't get passionate. Um, and one thing that's broken that a little bit in the last week, which has, you know, been a joy to see has been something what's happened around the RMT strikes um, and the conversation there around um, people actually supporting the strikes and, uh, and the gen general secretary of the RMT, you know, getting a great reception because just speaking the truth. Um, mm. and, and, and I I was also struck by the way in which uh, there were barrister strikes as well and someone unraveled an RMT banner there and there was huge cheers. Um, which is of course again that sense of solidarity between different workers that have had enough yeah how are you feeling right now do you feel things like that are pointing us in the right direction um is do you think people have had enough is this cost of living crisis now you know the final uh, straw interestingly uh, i did not foresee uh, when i was close to completing the book and coming up with the recommendations quite the level of, of, of uh, disquiet among uh, working class uh, people who are organized and part of trade unions. Obviously a majority of them aren't, and that's still a big problem. But the thing is with, with uh, organizing, you don't need to get a majority on board. You, you just have to get enough people that you can leverage that power to, to get what, what is fair and what is required. And so it's it's from from a point of view of someone who's laboured over this book for many long years, um, it was it was somewhat satisfying to to see that in the week that it went out, a lot of the things that I wrote about, a lot of the recommendations in the end of the book, um, and a lot of the analysis of of aspects of of the left, which quite frankly is what most of these unions are the institutional manifestation of. Uh, it started to feel real. It started to feel less speculative. I started to realise, no, actually, um, it's very clear, you know, someone like Mick Lynch coming on TV armed with expertise mm. and sincerity uh, can be so effective. 
But but to be sincere and to be an expert is not enough. He also had the tremendous fortitude to stand his ground in the face of what was an onslaught of absolute ineptitude on, on the part of many seemingly well-educated, sophisticated uh, people in media and in politics, and really doing what many of us know working-class people are well capable of doing, which is running rings around uh, people who are so often closer to the elites than they are uh, to ordinary working folk. Um, I feel that the, 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 the real prize on offer uh, here is when we begin, and I think that the RMT are really being quite successful at doing this. They're not just out there arguing on, well on behalf of their members. They're, they're, they're reframing society's current predicament as a structural story about inequality, about wealth being siphoned off uh, close to the top with nothing given in return. And uh, this is an unsustainable economic settlement. And that analysis is absolutely correct. Um, it's, it's then a question of how do people navigate what is ultimately a very hostile media environment, which is, is very well versed in marginalizing uh, the, the, the genuine economic concerns of working people. I mean, it's interesting how quickly platformed working class people's concerns are when they relate to tedious culture war issues. They go yeah. straight to the top of the to-do list. Are you angry about Doctor Who being female? Uh, you are now on national television, and and this this culture war is really created as a as a sidebar, as a distraction, as something for people to become falsely invested in, uh, where they think that things are changing, when actually the economic situation has flatlined, and has been that has been the case for the better part of forty years now. Uh, so there's a tough road ahead, but I think that, that there is an electricity in the air and I will be watching and participating uh, where appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, the culture war, of course, is created to distract and to divide. And, you know, somewhere where we've seen a lot happen is on the narrative of class. So a kind of the white working class versus the immigrant and people of colour working class when actually the shared ec economic interests are huge and this is where you know trade unions joint struggles can really help to to push back on some of that divisiveness um just thinking through the way in which you structured the book and how you brought alive different stories and um, so not just you know the, the homeless person in scotland but also the the landed gentry um i think that's one of the things that's so engaging about the book um can you tell us about why it was so important to you to give that sense of local context and humanize people? Yes, yes, thank, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about it because for me that's the, the, some of the, the stuff that's not often discussed when you get the chance to go out there and push the book, you know, why did you structure it the way you did? And I mean, I knew very early on that uh, I had to I had to ground the argument in more than my own subjective lived experience. Um, Poverty Safari, I think, was was uh, resonated and was as successful as it was, partly because it didn't really look at the structural issues. It was very much a book written with my local community in mind. So it was about the third sector. It was about local lefties, and it was for 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 local people in the community. And so in that sense, it resonated deeply with them, but it also ended up resonating with a lot of conservatives and a lot of moderates uh, 
because it contained a lot of themes of personal responsibility and personal redemption and you can't blame the system and uh, and 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 really I think that for me this book was about correcting anyone who might be in any doubt about what my politics are because there is a place for all of those things but that doesn't take away from the massive structural disadvantage that millions of people are under and in order to make that a powerful argument you really have to get out there and speak to people who are experiencing poverty now not the poverty I experienced as a child, that it's a different ball game now. So the, the, the idea was really to, to try and put myself in situations uh, where not only am I being validated in my assumptions about things like homelessness or the Grenfell fire, but also in situations where I feel challenged and just observing my own thoughts and behaviour when I am out on a grouse hunt or when I am spending time with a, you know, one of Scotland's most celebrated billionaires. And just recognizing, you know, you have all of these politics that you wear on your sleeve, you have these pretensions of how you will behave in the face of, of wealth and power. And the reality is uh, that, that there is very deep within us uh, a desire to conform, a desire to understand our rank. And, and for me, that is as important as the structural analysis. So it was an attempt to really braid together what you would expect to see in a book about inequality, where you're looking at the objective institutional class barriers in the labour market, education, criminal justice, property, but then a, a, a kind of a smorgasbord, if you will, of these cultural issues which are far subtler and, and, and often escape our notice because they are so difficult to articulate around things like language, the development of, of a vocabulary, a speech style, how we are judged for how we sound, and how this forms another layer of, of potential exclusion when we go and operate in these other more objective areas like education, labour market, etc. And so also, I sought a tremendous amount of guidance from, from my publisher about structuring this book because uh, really, it was the manuscript was like three books. Um, <laughs> I struggled in the beginning because when a book you'd wrote does really well and you weren't expecting it, you second guess yourself a lot and you think, what does the second book have to be like? And really, I just began to, 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 to that's when I really had to rely on what my true values are to guide me through that. Because it would have been easy to write another poverty safari type book uh, that was really broadly appealing when actually I felt that this book, I, I had to honour the anger that I felt that I had seen in communities, because it would be easy for me just to tell everyone to calm down and be moderate and, you know, take that nice polite tone that doesn't upset any career opportunities and leaves you in good standing and your nice dinner party and all of this, quite frankly, bullshit. And, and so that, that really concentrated the mind because then I understood, no, with this book, I want to get in people's faces. I want to model what getting in people's faces looks like for people who are considering getting in someone's face. And so it was really great, again, to see Mick Lynch out there really showing us how it's done, because that's the approach that I often feel that I have to take whenever I'm doing any sort of interaction with uh, middle-class people who kind of towards the, the establishment way of, of doing things. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's been really inspirational. Um, even 
it's quite funny how many times you can watch those interviews. My husband keeps saying to me, should we watch some more Mick Lynch? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, just coming back to this point about anger, and I think, um, you know, for those of us that have seen how badly the system will treat people, not, not because of anything they've done, but really, I think probably at the heart of it, prejudice and demonization of those groups. Um, anger is often the thing that gets us going. Um, and, you know, in Poverty Safari, that was, you know, you could feel your anger. Um, what place do you think anger has in, like you, you're saying there that, you know, we shouldn't let it go, we can just be polite, but what role does it have? Because I think for many people, the anger can, you know, eat you up and you just don't know what, what to do with it and where to take it. Yeah, it's a difficult one because whenever you begin to, to discuss what should happen with anger, you're always at risk of being seen to either appropriate it in some way for your own ends or to dismiss it or delegitimize it. But speaking from a perspective of someone who has been forced to become emotionally aware as a result of my own struggles in life and my own mental health and issues with alcohol and drugs, I understand that just pure unbridled rage while very cathartic and satisfying as it's expressed, it's best in small doses uh, because really it's a stress response and, and what it does is it, 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 it makes operative all of your worst qualities as a human being in terms of communicating, listening, being persuasive, truly understanding what's going on around you. So anger should be the catalyst into action. And so then the question is, what do I do with this anger? And, and what you do is, 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 is your personal choice. Some people, they join a trade union, they join a campaign, they work in their community, or they work on themselves, they try to better themselves. And, and for me, uh, at an individual level, uh, I, I, I'm always vigilant of, of uh, anger, uh, creating a kind of red mist in terms of, um, my analysis or thoughts and so much of the editing process of this book was about recognizing the legitimacy of the anger, honoring it, but also removing unnecessary invective, unnecessary hyperbole, unnecessary um, vitriol, because ultimately, while the book is very pointedly written and is very clear who it's written to at certain points, it is also an attempt to have a dialogue with, with the, the sections of society that I'm very strongly criticising. And so it was important for me to also honour that part of my nature, which is I would really love to wake up one day and find out this society actually works. I would really love to wake up one day and find out, you know what, capitalism, we've done, we've done the analysis and actually it's going really well and there's nothing to worry about. Sometimes I'll look for evidence of that. Sometimes I'll pick up books, you know, Everyone will go on a Steven Pinker YouTube rabbit hole to find a comforting story about how life today is actually better than it's ever been. And I'm susceptible to that as well. But deep down at my core, I know it just isn't true. And so it's really trying to reconcile what ultimately for me is a radical set of beliefs and a radical analysis of what has to be done in society with a very natural uh, compassion um, and understanding that other people have as much choice over where they're born and the culture in which they're socialized as I do. And so sometimes even, even, you're, even someone who might seem like your worst enemy politically, 
might might actually possess qualities uh, from which you might learn something, or or you might get in a dialogue and actually be able to to find some common ground around which to better understand each other. And I think that these two qualities uh, um, breeded. Uh, is, is, is the most emotionally intelligent way to conduct your politics at public level. Uh, and it also means that you, you, you retain your integrity. People understand where they stand with you, but you're open-minded and willing and open to persuasion, just as you would hope to persuade others. Mm. And so for me, anger is, is, is really just a, is a catalyst, but I can't remain in that place of anger for too long because for me, it's like shame, it's corrosive. Uh, 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 too long a dose and, and it's just really bad for you. Yeah, just picking up on something you said there about you know, talking to people and, and in the book, you know, having these conversations where you're, you're essentially, you know, not judging that person on their own, but understanding them within the system. Um, but often when we talk about why we don't see the kinds of policies that would help working class people, um, we end up saying, oh, it's a lack of empathy which it often is as well. Um, but one thing you're really good at pointing out is that it's ultimately just very different clashing um, material interests that what we're asking some people to do, and not just those at the very top, but some of those in the middle class as well, is to give up some of their privileges um, and some of their material interests. Um, interested in kind of where that, where, where that takes us, given yeah. there is that antagonism. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, the... the, the I've read a couple of the the less glowing reviews, shall we say, from you know conservative blogs, and um, the ideas there are that I'm old left, which I've foreseen, you know, because a lot of these blogs are are, are as predictable in their analysis as I am in my politics. Um, but ultimately, I, I'm not even advocating a curtailing of the privileges. I'm, a, I'm advocating an expansion of the privileges. <laughs> so it's like, I, I believe there is enough resource uh, within our society, enough wealth for, for the rich people to remain rich um, and, and for, for the upper middle classes to remain comfortable while also, whilst also expanding some of the... the aspects of their lifestyles and privileges to those sections of the population which have been denied uh, for so long so you know you, if, if if you if you abolish private education what you're giving private education pupils an opportunity to do is to become truly cultured is to become truly sophisticated because it is only by interacting with the society over which they are destined to preside, that they really become insightful, that they really become intelligent. And, and, and I mean intelligence as applied every day in life and not just the ability to recite, to absorb um, and, and, and retain information that you've been told is important, but actually interacting with people, understanding uh, both sides of, of this social inequality picture. But of course, wanting to abolish private school, that's seen as an attack, as is any attempt to even the playing ground. And so this is the terrain in which we have to operate and it's very frustrating and very difficult. Um, but I think that, 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 that uh, if, if, you, if you look at the education system, particularly in England, 
where you have the, the most overt marketized education system. In Scotland, the outcomes are broadly the same. Outcomes are, are differentiate along lines of social class, the algorithm and the exam scandal more harshly moderated children from poorer postcodes. It's the same story. It's just obviously we don't have that overt marketized system. But but if, if if you look at if you look at if you actually look at the education system as one example of an area where if you removed inequality, the system would collapse. It's in this educational attainment gap. So if you actually remove the educational attainment gap by addressing inequalities in housing, criminal justice, um, uh, health, then uh, you know you would have millions of working class children who would then be competing with middle class children for all the jobs and the professions and the universities, places, and, and that would be absolute mayhem. Who would be there to pick up the phone when you want to get some random information about your car insurance at 2 a.m.? Who would be there to, to, to uh, provide the drive-through burger on your way home from a late night drinking session? Um, you know, and, and it's when you understand that, you see that the education system derives its integrity from the reproduction of inequality mm -hmm. and that the exam algorithm really showed that because what they did with the algorithm was they had to create a mechanism by which historic inequalities were preserved. And in that sense, that's mirrored across all of the socioeconomic landscape, criminal justice, health, so on and so forth. So it's a way these systems that create hierarchy and they feed off hierarchy, like you say. I mean, I really like that reframing of what education should be for. But I guess in a system where you feel like you've got to do this and do this and then get a high paid job and then maybe then you can afford afford a house. Although a house now, you know, is nine times your average salary if you're in London and seven everywhere else. So, you know, it's I guess it's that the whole system again comes into play. You might want to do that reframing of being cultured, of understanding each other as, as, a, as the main um, thing we should be aiming for, a main objective of education, but then a whole lot of other things would have to be reframed as well. I'm interested as well in how you look at the public and private sectors within the book and um, how the private sector operates and has so much room to do what it wants to do with the public sector essentially coming in and um, to mop up just some of the mess sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. through what the role, what you think the relative roles are of public and private sector. Yes, uh, absolutely. And thanks. I think you're the first person that's 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 asked me this question. Um, the role of the public sector now uh, seems to be that it, it's deployed to deal with all of the terrible outcomes that are associated with. A, a, a private sector which is very much unfettered in terms of how it's able to exploit people, the environment, um, the public realm. And so if we look at, uh, for example, the rise in obesity, which is concurrent to the rise in mass food production um, and, and the proliferation of, of, of uh, what you would call junk food and junk food advertising, and this kind of uh, searing, uh, this image of being happy and comfortable and relieved uh, into your mind with a McDonald's arches so that uh, any child out there who uh, wants to have a good time automatically just wants to go to McDonald's 
Now, in one sense, you could say that's really skillful advertising, but there's something sinister at the root of that when you see the obesity statistics which have, have, have risen in concurrence with that. And so my argument in the book is not necessarily that we shouldn't have a private sector. I mean, obviously we should, and I, and I believe that I, what I really like about the private sector is how quickly it can adapt to changing circumstances because it's not as, as cumbersome a bureaucracy. So, you know, if, if, if Starbucks gets a sniff that people like to have uh, their coffee with a certain level of natural light and proximity to a PowerPoint, every single franchise gets modified within a couple of years to reflect that, that consumer desire. And so people spend more time reading in Starbucks than they do in public libraries because what we do in the public libraries when people stop visiting them is we just close them instead of upgrading them. And really, you know, whether it's in the drugs uh, crisis that we see in Scotland, which the rest of the UK will catch up with very soon, believe me, or whether it is in lifestyles and health outcomes, uh, what, what, we're, what we're seeing constantly is a certain area of the economy is liberalised to do as it will. Um, and then five years later, we begin to get the data on what the impact of that has been. So whether you're looking at uh, public transport, the, the price is going up correlated to the discomfort of using it, whether you're looking at how, um, you know, the uh, Blair, uh, not, not just, not just uh, allowed gambling to, to happen, but really wanted it to become a kind of natural everyday pursuit that people would just be gambling every day. And this has led to an absolute explosion in gambling related harm, including a, a, a quite worrying number of suicides every year are associated specifically with that problem. So this is what happens when politicians are surrounded by coteries of private sector influence and lobbyists. So they're getting told a brilliant story uh, about the benefits to the state if you just give us a bit more leeway to do what we will. And in truth, actually, you need, you need a wee bit more regulation. You need a government to say, yes, of course, you should be free to make your money, but you also have to demonstrate that you're minimising public harm because this all comes back to us as a health cost later. And, and that's what we have in Britain right now. Uh, we have an explosion in every area of ill health that you could conceivably measure, which can be traced in a very linear way to some other decision that was made previously to, to just let these private sector cowboys do whatever the hell they like. So you've started to hint there at where we need to take more action. Um, I mean, one of the ma main points in the book as you set out in the beginning of this chat is uh, the lack of lived experience that a lot of people who are involved in policy formation um, have. Or, uh, and I, I remember myself being on a panel one time talking about um, you know, putting money in the meter for electricity and I started talking about our own, my own experiences growing up. And at that time, uh, the 80s, people had to put literal money in the, in, in the machine. Um, and I started talking about it and everyone looked really shocked and confused because I realized in that room of policy thinkers, no one else had had that experience. It was, and they were quite shocked to hear about it firsthand in that way. Um, yeah. But what, I mean, what can we do? What can we do to encourage more people into policy making that have that experience and on the flip side unfortunately sometimes we do have people with that experience and their whole argument is that I made it therefore anyone else can that's what yeah. I find happens more often than not unfortunately yeah 
Yeah, well, pe- people who achieve success often under the, the subconscious pressure to, to fulfil a role within an environment that they had a very small chance of ever getting into, they sort of adapt to that by furnishing everyone around them with a kind of acceptable uh, story about how they achieved success and they revise the truth and they forget all the help they got and they forget yeah. all the luck they had, which um, is... is is upsetting but understandable um for in terms of creating greater proximity between decision makers policy makers and uh, other people with you know not just lived experience but other areas of expertise which is often excluded also i would uh, i would go as far as abolish the house of lords and and replace it with a second chamber of of uh, citizens who are are, are kind of called almost like jury duty where uh, we we engender a culture in in, in the UK where uh, we, this, we, we recognize the limits of this representative democratic model because you have a political class which is increasingly unrepresentative of a majority of people and so really we just need a bit of democratic innovation um, such as that that we had when when you know when uh, the barons wrested power from the king, or when the House of Commons was created, or there have been periods where it's been recognised that the basic integrity of society um, or the power structure itself is threatened, that a concession has to be made in order to get a mass of people on side. And I believe that this is one of those moments. I would give uh, people with lived experience in particular areas uh, a chance to inform social policy I would give experts in various fields. And I'm not saying get a bunch of lefties in there either. I mean, quite frankly, I quite enjoy listening to the views of, of, of moderate conservatives who have sincerely held views and are part of a rich intellectual tradition on the right, which is not this new right, which is defined mostly by its ineptitude and opportunism. Hmm. So I would like to see a great diversity of voices in there um, and, and give them the £300 a day allowance and give them all the perks that the, the hereditary peers get for doing absolutely piss all. And, uh, and, and, and I think that would be really symbolic of, of, of Britain's desire to unshackle itself from this ancient notion of hereditary privilege, which is just increasingly absurd. And it's really just become, you know, when, when we're celebrating the Jubilee and most of these people who, who reveal the Queen are harmless. And I understand human beings have a natural desire to plug into something bigger than themselves and that they see the Queen as a kind of conduit to reaching across social classes and that people from different backgrounds can all come together and situate themselves around this amazing symbol. I get all that. I'm not being judgmental. But the Queen's getting to get getting a first look at the laws that affect her wealth before anyone else. Yeah. So this idea that she's just a symbolic figure is nonsense. And Especially that power is... Scotland's right yeah and that power is conferred upon her by her hereditary privilege which she done nothing for yeah and she's able to leverage that privilege in all sorts of perverse ways in relation to some of the odd behavior and vulgar behavior of some of the members of her own family and so this is the thing that we really need to break from um, because if we live in a meritocracy well let's see who deserves to do well you know, and, and I think, you know, abolishing the House of Lords would be really symbolic of a genuine desire to, to, to look into the 21st century with something more than just this kind of rose-tinted, ridiculous notion of what the UK is or has been. 
Yeah, I mean, I always think that with the House of Lords, you know, because there is that hereditary aspect of it, I mean, these Viscounts that are like, just had it in their family, I mean, what, why have they got this power? Um, and often people don't really know about what goes on there and who is there and why they're there um, because they're rich. Um, but yeah, so I really, I really do like that idea and democratic innovation, which, you know, uh, several countries are trying things like citizens assemblies, other types of social dialogue um, to try and bring in more voices. And like you say, not just a one political um, uh, arm, but trying to bring in people across, even selecting people at random, right? Like you said, like a jury service. Um, yeah. And I also, even as a Londoner, um, quite like the idea of, you know, how Westminster moves out of London. And I wondered what you thought of that as well. Well, obviously, we, we uh, it, it seems like the the movements in particularly in Scotland and Wales for greater political autonomy, whatever that might look like, are, are, are pretty strong and not necessarily because the arguments uh, that we make are always logically sound, um, but because the mismanagement of, of society and Westminster is just so outrageous that really you can have an SNP government up here which is largely catering to middle-class voters who often have very deep conservative beliefs. Um, and, and still you have a lot of people up here on the opposite end of the spectrum who will turn up and vote for the SNP in any event, no matter what the hell is going on in Scotland, because the SNP represents the chance to to, to have full political autonomy. And as long as, as, long as um, you have unionists in Scotland or in Wales who see those nationalist movements as more of a threat than the current status quo in the UK, then they will never find a way back to any sort of political influence in these respective countries, Scotland, Wales, because that is that is that is the most outrageous way of looking at it. Um, ultimately, the only the only next logical step for devolution um, in Scotland is independence, because every time that this idea of a more federal UK has been floated, it's always just been to secure uh, a pro-union majority. And then it just gets tossed to the side, like most political promises. Yeah. Now I'm I'm pro independence, and I've made my bed, and I will lie in that bed. And when when it's time to get out there and make the arguments, I'll try and find the best ones I can, and I'll get out there and do that. And for me, the argument is proximity. In Scotland, you feel like your politicians can sense your presence when you make your voice known. You feel like you're participating. In Scotland, I don't know if it's because it's geographically smaller. I don't know if it's because the parliament is not as is old and therefore hasn't become as insulated from, from social reality. Um, but either way, uh, that, that, that's, that's where I sit on that issue. But I do think that there are many compelling cases, particularly social solidarity. I mean, what does Mick Lynch represent? He represents union, <laughs> the, the power of union. And, uh, you know, and there's something about that. There's something as me as an independence campaigner, I think to myself, why do I want to separate away from this guy down here? Because he seems to be doing the business and I kind of, I want to have solidarity with him. 
his argument is these resources are ours, and my argument is this oil's mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so lots to think about. Lots to think about. Yeah, but, I mean, we could unfortunately. I'm getting a message saying that we should uh, yeah. wrap up, and I would love to talk to you more about this and that point about solidarity and solidarity beyond borders, of course. Um, and more about uh, your views on independence. And I, you know, that point about proximity, feeling like you're engaging or you're being listened to, mm. certainly is not the case. You know, even as growing up in London, you didn't feel that it was another world, even if it was close by. So what it's like for people living in other parts of England, I can only imagine that it's, it's worse. Um, and so, yeah, I think that sense of, um, belonging, feeling part of something, um, having a say, that is the sort of thing that we should be aiming for and we should be building society to make sure that that's happening. That's not the case right now. Um, no. So uh, I'm afraid we are out of time. And so I wanna thank Darren um, and hopefully this has given you a bit of a taste of the book and made you wanna engage more with um, the work that Darren is doing and his book. And I would encourage you to get it and. Um, I've certainly found it really interesting to read. So the social distance between us um, and there's details of where you can get a copy um, here in the chat and also on the RSA website. I'm sure you can follow Darren on Twitter as well. Um, please do stay tuned to RSA channels for other events like this um, and you can hit subscribe on YouTube. Um, yeah, and just finally again, thank you, Darren. It's been a total pleasure speaking to you and um, yeah, I would love to talk more about class and all of these issues that we're facing and how we can solve them because like you said you know there is a there is a sense that maybe things are beginning to turn and we need to push because what's more important than fighting for a better world absolutely thanks very much Faisal cheers thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations